some people might say you can just write it down in your computer in your notes or whatever. That's not smart. You shouldn't you shouldn't store your keys in an online environment or even in a digital environment, preferably. Listen to this, man. Do not store keys on an online device. That means do not open Microsoft Notes and and write down your twenty four words. Do not do that, please. Yeah, that's a good disclaimer. The computer is sort of an extension of the person, but Bitcoin is is part of the person, right? Because that's the quote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you, exactly. we should frame that. Yeah. The, you know, uh, the computer is an extension of the person, but the Bitcoin is the person. That's perfect. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. In today's episode, we discuss the all-important concept of how best to take self-custody of your Bitcoin with Samuel Harjumpa, CEO of Zelox. We discuss topics such as how to store Bitcoin the safest way, how Bitcoin and digital identity are related, and how Samuel went all in on Bitcoin at a young age by co-founding Zelox. But before we jump in, we want to let you know how you can support the show. The first way is to send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value-for-value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, check it out on Fountain. You can earn sats from listening and you can support us and all your other favorite shows. You can also support us on Geyser Fund or send sats directly to our lightning address, freedom at getalbi.com. And if you want to exchange your dirty fiat, you can support us on Patreon. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe to the channel and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App and Bitcoinbook.shop. We'll be talking a bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, here is Samuel Harjumpa on the Freedom Footprint Show. Samuel Harjumpa, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to see you, Samuel. You're a strapping young lad in the Bitcoin community, a youngling with a <laughs> relatively newly formed company, I believe, called Xelox. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Zellox. Zellox depends Zellox, on where you yeah. are. Starts with an X anyway. So uh, please tell us a, a bit about yourself to begin with. Tell us about yourself and then we'll deep dive into what the company is about. Sure. I'm Samuel and I can maybe start off by telling you how I sort of got into Bitcoin and my whole story there. Well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm sort of, this, this is usually what I tell people that I'm, I'm sort of of the generation that doesn't really remember the first time they heard about Bitcoin, which is probably pretty good in terms of the fact that I've, I've sort of lived with it my whole life. But the first time I can, I can actually remember actually hearing about Bitcoin was in 2013. I think it was the fall of 2013 when Silk Road fell. And my parents are sort of like Luddites. They're not really big fans of technology, which actually drove me to be sort of a, a techie. But, um, they sort of kept me away from technology for a long time. I didn't get a, a phone until I was like 12, 13 years old. And I didn't get a smartphone until I was like 14, 15 years old, which in, in retrospect, I think is very good. I'm not trying to give everyone parenting advice, but at the time I thought it was very unfair. And you were lucky. I didn't get one until I was 30, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice to think of it that way. But in my school, I was the only kid who didn't have a phone. And, um, actually now, now look, looking back at it, I'm, I'm very grateful for that because I, I sort of learned and, and took in reading a lot when I was a kid, I was naturally very curious 
And I like to sort of think of myself as, as something between like a nerd and not a nerd. I can be very nerdy, but at the same time, I can be sort of very social and out, outwards going. But anyway, I, I heard about Bitcoin on the news, actually, because my parents really wanted me to read the newspaper, watch the news, sort of keep track of what was going on. And um, so, yeah, I heard about the arrest of, of Russ Albright and, and Silk Road, which is pretty pretty normal way to get into Bitcoin through the whole dark web thing. And to be perfectly honest, I, I didn't grasp Bitcoin, not, not the slightest back then. That didn't happen until like 2017. But, but I got really interested in, in the fact that you actually had this sort of deep, dark internet that people didn't really understand and didn't really, uh, were really able to access or, or get into. So I actually had this secret phablets that I had bought without the permission of my parents that I, that I stored under, under my mattress. I used to go on sort of Wikipedia binges, you know, try to explore the internet because my parents didn't want me to. That's sort of when I, when I really got interested in, in originally the deep web or, or the dark web. And I started trying to find out how I can get there, how I can, you know, find this secret world on the internet. And obviously I, I did find it. It wasn't that hard. You just downloaded an onion browser and, and off you went. That's when I, that's when I ran into Bitcoin for the first time. But as I said, I, I didn't really grasp it at all. It was much later when I may or may not have bought a, a false ID in 2018 to get into bars and, and, and buy drinks that I actually sort of got in, in proper contact with Bitcoin for the first time. And that was back when you could actually just buy Bitcoin in, in these Bitcoin ATMs, non-KYC. I think it was in maybe 2019, 2020 when, when they started requir requiring KYC on, on those cash purchases. But anyway, that's sort of how I got, got into Bitcoin. But the biggest sort of thing for me in, in terms of Bitcoin was, was in 2019, 2020, when I did an exchange year in Argentina. And that's sort of when I really grasped the whole philosophical aspects of it. Like I, I had sort of understood the technology. I obviously, like in, in 2013, I, I did get interested in the technology of Bitcoin and I, and I studied it a bit, but um, there wasn't really that flame, you know, that, okay, this is going to be huge. This is going to be big. Now I understand why this is important because obviously I was living in Finland and things were, were fairly stable here. I didn't really grasp economic concepts like inflation. But in Argentina, I got to see what inflation really is pretty much the worst kind of inflation. That's when it really sort of hit me what, what Bitcoin could actually do for the world and what an open, open and permissionless monetary network can do. And that's sort of when I actually, actually got really deep into it. And then in, in 2021, uh, we started Zelox and originally the goal, the goal was always to make a hardware wallet, but we, we thought, we figured, okay, we're not really technical. We don't really know how this is going to work out. But so, so we decided to start with some, something easier, but something that's sort of tied into the bigger narrative here. So, um, we actually, the, the iPhone 12 had just come out with, with the MagSafe magnet functionality for the first time. It was just a regular N52 magnet, like a circular magnet. And our goal was always to make sure of this offline hub that uh, sort of contains multiple different offline devices in one, just like the iPhone sort of like contains like the internet, smartphone, and sort of camera functionalities in, in one mobile device. And the mobile device is something that has existed forever, right? It's, it's just been occupied by different 
devices. You know, you can think of before the smartphone, you had the feature phone, or then you had the iPod. I, I usually like to call the iPod sort of the first hardware wallet in a sense, because it's like a, an offline device that sort of stores some type of digital property. Obviously, it was just music back then, but, but now it's just possible to do a lot more. One could feel the, the Swiss army knife as the first prototype of a mobile phone, <laughs> of a smartphone. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, it's like the mobile form factor ha has existed forever. It's just under different, different devices. And then, then we sort of started thinking that what is going to be the next iteration of this mobile form factor? We, we realized the smartphone's not forever. The smartphone's going to experience innovation. And, and it was pretty clear for us uh, that uh, sort of smart glasses would be the next iteration. It's pretty logical to think that we move from a two-dimensional online world into a three-dimensional online world. And then we thought about, you know, what's going to happen with the smartphone? Well, obviously, like we've seen before, the form factor doesn't go anywhere. It just transforms into something else. So the first thing we started to do was uh, this magnetic wireless power bank. We, we call it MagBank. And the point was like, okay, iPhone now has this uh, magnetic functionality and it would be pretty easy to just take an existing wireless power bank, make it a bit smaller and just incorporate this N52 magnets into the casing there. So it would, it would stick to the back of a phone, kind of like some Apple wallets do as well. So that was sort of where we started. And, and the goal was always to first start doing something that we were able to do. This was pretty easy. It was just a battery, a, a charging, Qi charging coil and a magnets. So it was really easy, simple products and no one else was doing it. So we thought, why not do it? Uh, and then obviously start expanding from there. So the next step would be to make the hardware wallet functionality in it. The next step would be to sort of uh, make these, you know, NFC key tags. Keys are, keys are very big. Obviously everyone has keys. Smart locks are, are a big thing as well. And then ultimately, you know, be able to incorporate something like wireless ear earphones into the same, same package, sort of like a, like you said, Swiss army knife, but for the digital world, right? But at the same time, something much more than that, sort of like a, a hub for your digital identity and property. So we started off doing that, uh, the power bank, then about six months later, Apple released the same exact product and Anchor, Belkin, all the other ones followed, sold about 200 units of those and decided that, okay, this, this market is very saturated. Now we're as a small, small startup, we're not going to have any, any chance in competing, competing here with the big players. So we decided to, okay, let's just jump in the deep and let's try to figure this hardware wallet thing out. Uh, and maybe we can raise some funding for it because it's, it's more sort of, uh, novel and there's less big competitors and, and it's still very early. So yeah, that's, that's what we started doing. That's the road we're on right now. That's a nice story. So, um, what is the, the, the hardware device? Like, wh what are your plans for it? How, how far have you come in, in uh, developing it? And, the uh, what, what is its main function? I mean, Swiss Army knife, but what, what's the most important knife to, to flip out? Sure. So the point we're at right now is we've built a prototype. It's currently based on top of a smartphone, smartphone. So what we've done is we've taken an existing smartphone removed pretty much like 60% of the internal components. Cause if you think about it, a hardware wallet is basically just like a very simple, simple smartphone that lacks sort of internet connectivity, uh, speakers, cameras, stuff like that. So we, we took a smartphone, removed a bunch of components and made our own 3d casing for it. And so to so the main knife that you sort of pull out is 
is obviously a payment uh, functionality. So this is this is something that we're sort of trying to shift narratives in in the Bitcoin space a lot here because the narrative right now is that your hardware wallet is sort of a storage device, right? You your hardware wallet stays at your house, maybe hide it, you keep it secure, you don't really touch it, you just stack sats into it, and then you have a mobile wallet, Lightning wallet that you can make payments from if you uh, are trying to live on the Bitcoin standard. But the narrative shift that we're trying to achieve is that, okay, if you had the opportunity to actually have everything in cold storage and have it be as secure as a normal hardware wallet, actually even more secure, and have it could be as easy to use as as a software wallet, then there's no reason to keep anything in the online environment. And now obviously the first question is, well, why would I want to carry all of my funds with me? And the answer to that is, well, you don't. So most wallets today utilize something called hierarchical deterministic wallet infrastructure, HD wallets. And, and what this allows is basically you can have the seed, which is obviously the master key. Uh, the seed is the one that's used to generate all the private keys. But what an HD wallet is able to do is, is you can generate multiple private keys. So if you have like a treasure, a ledger, um, other, other wallets, you can see that you can create multiple accounts within the same sort of environment with the same seed. What this allows us to do is to basically very clearly differentiate between a spendings account and a savings account and actually have it be so that only the keys of the savings account stay on the device while the keys of the, uh, sorry, only the keys of the spendings account stay on the device and the keys of the uh, savings account don't. So how, how is this done exactly? Well, basically just the wallet generates a seed for you, right? After that, it generates two keys, one key that stays on the device and one key that doesn't. The one that doesn't is the savings account and you obviously generate all the addresses for it. Now these addresses do stay on the device. And the question is, well, why is this required? Why is this necessary? Well, a big problem is that let's say you just generate a, a savings account and then you just copy the addresses, you put them in your notes or whatever. And then every time you want to send funds to those, you do it. Well, now you can get clipboard hacked. Someone can change the addresses in on your online device and you end up just sending money to someone else, right? So that's why you can save the addresses of your savings accounts on your hardware wallet. So every time you actually send to those addresses, you'll be sure that they're coming from the offline device that can't be tampered. So um, I've actually done this with with a lot of my friends and family. And, and this comes back to like, what's the best way of saving Bitcoin? If you're simply saving Bitcoin, you don't even need a hardware wallet. You just need a seed phrase. And you can put that seed down on paper or preferably metal. So what I've done with my friends and family is this. I have a hardware wallet. They don't want to bother buying one. They haven't been enlightened yet, at least properly. But um, what, what we've done is, is I've just went to every one of them and we've simply generated a seed for them. We've generated a seed and we've taken the addresses corresponding to that account and just sent them to each other in, in like a, um, a group uh, text or, or like a regular text. Now I just leave them with the seed and I wipe the hardware wallet. So now they have their own keys, but they don't have a hardware wallet. I can access them, only they can access them, but they don't need a hardware wallet to save. 
right? So they can just store the seed. They don't have to worry about, okay, where's my hardware wallet? Where's my seed? That's, that's unnecessary confusion. You don't, you don't need your hardware wallet to save Bitcoin. You just need a seed and addresses. So what is a wallet? A wallet is something we spend out of, right? So, um, that's sort of what we're building. We're, we're trying to build this Google Apple Pay type of experience for a hardware wallet because Okay, if we think about the, the common narratives in the Bitcoin space right now, so let's say you you should keep maybe 10% of your funds on a hot wallet, 90% in a cold wallet. Well, if every person on, on earth keeps 10% of their funds in a hot wallet, that hot wallet contains, or a hot wallet contains 10% of the world's funds. Now, why would we want that if we can just get the same user experience on a cold wallet? So that's sort of the shift that we're trying to make here. Nice. The thing that comes to mind for me is like, I, I remember something about, I think it was Samsung that signed some deal with some hardware wallet manufacturer. Like, I think it was Ledger, not, not completely sure, but this was like three years back. So do you see in the future, like a mobile phone that has an offline unit within it? And also this, what you call a, like a monitoring of some, a, a real cold storage thing. And uh, the, the layer I'd like to see in hardware wallets is the deep freeze coin, which is even colder than cold storage. And that, those are time-locked Bitcoins that not even you can ruin for yourself, you know? So, but, but my question is really, do you see this device being integrated into a regular mobile phone, maybe with a little switch or something where you connect the hardware, but it's really separated on the inside? Is that where you see, see this going in the future or, or do you think like the mobile phone will be one device and the, the wallet will be another? Yeah, this is something I've thought about extensively and the answer is no, I don't think so. So Samsung basically already has this, Apple already had, has this, it's, it's called a secure element or a secure enclave. If you look up uh, Samsung blockchain key store or uh, key storage, basically exactly that so it's a, it's a it's a secure element that's inside of the device that's basically keeping the private keys inside of the secure elements now the problem here is that the secure element is connected to the online world there's no user interface for the secure element i've i've heard uh, michael Saylor talk about this a lot like apple is going to integrate a hard when, when apple builds a hardware wallet into their uh, into their iPhone, that's going to be a big thing. Well, no, because what you need for it to be truly secure is that they are two completely separate devices. So air gapping is, is a term that gets to, thrown around a lot. Air gapping basically just means there is a physical air gap between the offline and the online environment. And what happens if you just put a secure element inside a mobile phone? Well, you're completely reliant on the mobile phone's display, right? Unless you build another offline only display, which is completely not smart because then you need an offline only processor. You basically, what you need is you need two mobile phones in one. Some people think Samsung is basically going for this with, with like the foldable phones, but doesn't look that way. And, and it's, it's pretty ridiculous in the sense that you're basically degrading the experience of both of the devices. You're making a worse mobile phone and you're making a worse hardware wallet. The problem is, okay, let's say you generate a seed on this device that has a secure element. First of all, every device already has a secure element. 
if you look up Samsung blockchain key storage hacked, you can find multiple multiple uh, art articles about about it getting hacked. Also about the Apple secure enclave. And the problem really is that that the secure element, which basically here functions as the hardware wallet, is just like an extra layer of security, but it doesn't actually provide that much security if you really think about it. Because what it does it is it only signs requests from the online environments. Since it doesn't have its own user interface, the user is not really responsible for sort of confirming what the secure element is signing. No, you're, Another, you're, you're still forced to, to, to trust a, a third party, uh, which is the, the, the phone manufacturer. Exactly. And, and even worse than that, you're, you're forced to trust the online environments, right? So yeah. let's say you're, everyone knows your mobile phone's display or computer's display can be manipulated. Anyone can show, if, if a hacker gets into it, it, they can show whatever they want, right? They can, they can show you you're making a transaction of 1,000 sats to Knut, but in reality, you're making a transaction of 100,000 sats to the hacker. And now, because you don't have an offline device that's sort of verifying that transaction for you and displaying it to you from the offline, the un, sort of uh, immutable uh, layer, the offline layer, you don't really know what you are signing, right? Another one is like, for example, the generation of a seed phrase. So information is for the digital world, what atoms are for the physical, right? So what does it mean to own something in the physical world? Well, I physically own something. I'm in possession of these atoms that form this, this airport case. And, and in the digital world, it's information. So I'm in possession of information. I'm the, the only person who has possession of that information. But now if you're displaying seed phrases, AKA the most vulnerable information on an online display, how do you know it's just yours? You don't. Now we're getting into my my territory here. I love this uh, the the differences between ownership and possession. And so, if if we define the words, uh, like ownership is contractual. So I can own your earbuds, for instance. And you, if you're in possession of them, you can choose to not give them back and just tell me to fuck off. And which is basically what all the central banks have done with gold uh, ought to belong to developing countries. They're like, can we have our gold back, please? And they say, oh, I don't think so, because they're in possession of it. And the way I see it, like ownership is then sort of a layer above possession. But Bitcoin is uh, an even deeper layer than possession because it's not you're not in possession of a physical thing at all. As you say, you're, it's just information. And what this implies is just simply mind-blowing when you start thinking deeply about it, because it means it all resides in our heads, because it's all keeping a secret. Everyone who owns Bitcoin is really just keeping a secret. They're not even in possession of the Bitcoin. They are just keeping a secret. And to me, what that implies philosophically is that there's no distinction between the person and the Bitcoin. We are the Bitcoins. It's not only if you memorize your seed phrase and destroy every other location it's in. Even if you don't destroy every every location it's in, it's pretty hard to find a seed phrase and to know that it is a seed phrase. And and like it can be, it doesn't have to be twenty four words. It could be ones and zeros. It could be yins and yangs. It could be whatever. You could hide it if if you have the know how. You can hide it in uh, an infinite number of ways. What, what's your thoughts on that, that, that the Bitcoins live inside you and that, that they're actually a part of you rather than 
something else. Like, like maybe I should flesh out the thought a bit more. The other side of that, of that philosophical thought is that the nodes aren't the Raspberry Pi's running umbrella. They're not the old laptops with Bitcoin Core. They're not the Start9 servers. The actual node is the person who decides to buy one and run the, the software on his hardware device. Because a computer is just a fancy abacus. It's just an extension of our minds. It, all it does is help us calculate. And uh, also, the same, same goes for a miner. An ASIC is really just a number-getting machine. Which, I mean, we could have guessed the numbers by just saying random numbers with our brains. Uh, but it would be very hard to make that fit within the consensus rules. So we use these fancy abacuses, abacai, <laughs> to, uh, to do the calculation for us instead called ASICs. But really, uh, a hangar full of ASICs, that's not the miners. The miner is the guy who owns them and decides to run them and pays for the electricity. So w- w- what are your thoughts on that when you hear that, that angle? Yeah, I think, I think there are multiple ways you can sort of formulate that. The, the way I would say that is the computer is sort of an extension of the person, but Bitcoin is, is part of the person, right? Because that's the quote. <laughs> yeah. That you, exactly. we should frame that. Yeah. The, uh, you know, uh, the computer is an extension of the person, but the Bitcoin is the person. That's perfect. That's, that's what I think. And it's good that you brought up miners, uh, because that, that sort of ties into this and, and, and sort of ASICs in, in particular, because that's, there's a very sort of deep correlation between like the way we secure the Bitcoin network, which is obviously with application specific integrated circuits, special computers meant just to secure the network by obviously hashing all the time. Yeah. Guessing a number. That's what exactly, exactly. Yeah. Basically playing the lottery, but, um, it's, it's, th- there's also sort of, um, you could, you could call them applica- application specific, uh, integrated circuits that should be used to, uh, secure individual Bitcoin. So if we think about like, what's the problem, like yeah. I, I spoke about the problem with, with sort of online devices, computers, smartphones, even smartwatches. Like what's the, what's the root cause of them being insecure? It's basically the fact that, um, that they are general purpose, right? So I can write software for a computer. I can write software for a smartphone. I can distribute that software globally over the internet. And the problem is that this software could contain something that's not good for you. It could contain parts that are actually meant to steal your digital property and identity. And there we get to the root problem, which is because they are general purpose, they are sort of okay at everything, but they're not really good at anything. Sorry, they're, they're okay at everything, but they're not really good at anything, right? So if we think about the most important things in, in the digital realm, what are the most important things? Well, just like the most important things in, in our lives are our people, the most important things in our digital realm is people. It's their identity, it's their properties, what makes, makes them who they are, right? So if we're not able to secure, uh, this private information in the, in the digital realm, it's, it's really not going to be a very nice experience for anyone. And general purpose computers, can't secure that information because they are by definition general purpose. They can 
like I said, they're okay at everything, but not good at anything. And the most important thing is to secure that critical information. So for that, we need specific computers that are only designed for that, single purpose computers. It's like, okay, if we take this, this through a metaphor, let's say you have brain cancer. I hope no one gets brain cancer or has brain cancer and that's obviously not the point, but let's say you get brain cancer. Who do you want to receive treatment from? Is it a generalist doctor who's done six years of medical school is like, okay at everything, they can sort of know what's going on. They sort of know how to, to do stuff, but they're not specialized in brain surgery. They're most likely to not succeed with the surgery and you're most likely to die because of it. Or would you like to receive treatment from a brain surgeon, someone who has specialized in that area? Well, the obvious answer is you want treatment from the brain surgeon. So this is sort of the same thing. Do you want your digital property and identity to stay on a device that's sort of okay at everything, but isn't really specifically designed to keep your property and, and identity safe? Or do you want it to be on a device that's sole purpose is to secure this critical data? Yeah, the, but that's... That's the attitude I have towards hardware wallets. So, so I don't even want them to have color displays. I want them to be, you know, a me mechanical device as simple as possible, and just one thing. Like that's the way. That's the way I like my <laughs> my hardware wallets. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill App. Stack friends who stack Sats, meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you, and help speed up hyper Bitcoinization with Orange Pill App. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill App helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. It maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to pay to access the app, you know that everyone there cares about Bitcoin and is high signal. A great new feature is events. You can create events and meetups right from the Orange Pill App and help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill App is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open source, non-custodial desktop wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi Wallet, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. So uh, speaking of those simpler devices, you make a, uh, a seed plate thingy, right? So tell us a little bit uh, about that. What, what, what does the seed plate thingy do and how does it differ from all the other seed plate thingies uh, that are out there? Sure. So obviously I talked about, you know, information being the most important thing in the digital realm and sort of owning a piece of information being the same as as owning a piece of, of physical property in, in, in the physical world. And obviously the seed phrase is the most important thing when it comes to your Bitcoin and the possession and, and, and ownership of your Bitcoin. Now, most people write the seed phrase down on paper. Why? Because paper is cheap. It's, it's an easy experience. You just write it. Everyone knows how to write. What's the problem? Well, obviously, paper is not that strong. It's not that durable. And you obviously want your 
Bitcoin to be very durable because Bitcoin is the hardest money in the world and it's the most durable money in the world. So the point of failure there is, is how you store the information, how you store the Bitcoin. Obviously, you can take the very easy stance and just keep it in an, on an exchange. But the problem is, well, that's just not going to work out in the long run. So not, not your keys, not your coins. Exactly. Not your keys, not your coins. So you should take self-custody of it. Everyone has to participate in the system as an individual for it to be a decentralized system. It's the same as in, as in running a node and as in running a miner. Obviously, everyone doesn't have to run a miner. Everyone doesn't have to run a node. But the more people actually participate in the system as an individual, the stronger the decentralization gets. And it's the same thing with, with owning Bitcoin. The more people participate in, in owning Bitcoin as an individual, the more decentralized the system gets, the less centralized power is formed. So you have to own your keys, right? To own your Bitcoin. And now our seed plate thing, Yokis, basically just allows you to, to store your seed phrase forever, pretty much. And, um, Yo Yokis? What, what was the yo name? Yokis. Yokis. So, Why? Like, yo, yo keys. Like, exactly. <laughs> you're, actually the, <laughs> you're actually the first one to get that. Yo keys. Bro. Yeah, it's like, like exactly, but your keys. It's, yo keys, homie. Uh, yeah. The name came from this uh, anime character called Yoki. It, it was uh, originally we were thinking like cool names. We knew we had like Zelox is X. And then we thought, well, X and Y. So we thought something with Y. Yoki is this anime character. And then if you just add an S, it's like Yoki is like your keys. I, I see a marketing campaign here with the word karaoke in it somewhere. But <laughs> let's talk about that some other time. Yeah, so so basically the goal with Yokis is to get to the user experience of, of paper. So paper is the best user experience for writing information down in a non-digital format. Obviously, you can just, some people might say you can just write it down on your computer, in your notes or whatever. That's not smart. You shouldn't, you shouldn't store your keys in an online environment or even in a digital environment, preferably. Listen to this, man. Do not store keys. On an online device, that means do not open Microsoft Notes and and write down your twenty four words. Do not do that, please. Yeah, that's a good disclaimer. Although I think your audience is is well aware of this, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully I have the quality over quantity in my audience, and they all know this. I think so, yeah. But basically, that the goal with Yokis is to to give people the experience of paper experience of writing the seed down on paper, but give that on a much more durable uh, material, stainless steel. What's sort of the innovative part about Yokis is, is the engraving uh, method. So we have an electric engraver that's very sleek, very easy to use, that has a, has a strong engine that can sort of engrave on the metal very easily. That's what helps us achieve this paper-like experience. Obviously, it's a bit of a learning curve, it's it's not exactly as writing on paper, but it's as close as we can get. Yeah, the engraving device is like a pen, right? So so it's maybe maybe more like a tattoo artist's pen than a a uh, pencil, but still a pen. You still move your hand and hold it with three fingers. Exactly. I mean, it's not. I have it right here. It's not big at all. It's it's very much like a normal pen, right? So 
the the point was always to to sort of get the same experience as you get with paper, but get it on metal, because obviously, paper is the best experience. Other metal seed phrase solutions have either a coordinate system or this sort of matrix system where you have a center punch and you punch it in. But um, when I tried those, I I saw the real risk of of getting confused. I actually got confused myself. Because obviously you have the matrix and you have to sort of check and make sure it's actually exactly the right square that you're punching it to. And then if you just look a bit wrong, it's probably very easy for, for many people, but for some people it, it can get confusing. What's that one that uh, prints a QR code on a, on a metal plate? I saw something like that, but I guess that's the, you run into the same issues as when you printed a paper wallet back in the day from a printer because there's software involved and software can get hijacked. Exactly. And, and you, you could basically say it's, it's a custodial solution, essentially. I mean, in a sense, because, well, you're trusting that this key that they are printing on it is not stored anywhere else. And you can't really be sure of that. I mean, you, you could argue it's self-custodial because you're keeping the keys yourself. Yes. But at the same time, it's like, well, you really don't know if someone else has access to those keys as well. It's kind of like a mobile device. Device. I, I usually, some people get triggered when I say that you can't have a non-custodial hot wallet. People, people get triggered like, what do you mean? Of course, like this and this wallet is non-custodial and it's, it's online. Okay. Yes. Same, same thing. It's, it's kind of true, but then at the same time, you really don't know what's going on on your online device. Like you don't know what's running in the background. So it's like, oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, and the, this is like for smaller amounts like this, it's okay to use custodial wallets, but your cold storage should be, that's the thing you should really, really, really take good care of as long as you do that. And uh, well, you're not supposed to sell your Bitcoins anyway, or just a tiny portion of it. If if you're using Bitcoin, like make sure that your stack is big enough before you start using it. That's <laughs> That's the key thing too. Yeah. And I actually want to come back to, to a point you made Knut, earlier about sort of you wanting the hardware wallet to be as simple as possible. Nothing fancy, no, no fancy screens. And my, my argument there is that you really don't, you, or you really shouldn't care how sophisticated the hardware wallet is if some factors are, are met or some points are met. So the first one is, okay, is it offline? If it's offline, then yes. The second thing is, is it open source? If it's open source, then yes, that's good. Because anyone can verify the, the key generation metric there. And the third thing is that does the seed or the key to your savings account stay on the device? Just while I think about it, the open sourceness of hardware wallets, I know there's been a lot of debate and I know some have open source software and some others have open source hardware. Are both those equally important in your opinion? Well, the first thing I want to say is that there is no hardware wallet that's completely open source, to my knowledge. Many, many hardware wallets like to advertise themselves as completely open source, but um, I've gone to know that dealing with cheap manufacturers, other manufacturers, there's always uh, some proprietary code from cheap manufacturers that you really aren't able to release. And stuff like Seed Signer uh, and those DIY projects, things you assemble yourself. Things that you assemble yourself, 
you're you're basically not doing it in a commercial manner. So there, you're 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 able to uh, have basically everything open source. But there, there as well, it's like it's not everything because unless you break the chip apart and make sure that the chip is exactly as promised, it's it's not open source, right? So you can't really be sure. Like, is this exactly the chip? Does this just look like the chip? And it's in another. It, it's really another chip, and there's other functionalities that that you don't really know about. So okay. So 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 the way the way I interpret that is that there's really no such thing as open source hardware because you can't trust that it's actually that hardware that is advertised. But but open source software is open source software. I mean, you can you can verify that it's actually what it what it claims to be. Is is this the point? Yes. Uh, obviously, there, there are still some drivers of the uh, of the components that may not or usually are not open source. But yes, you you can basically say that that it's fully open source if you release all the code you can release. And here again, that the most important thing is that uh, the seed generation process, like the true random number generator, is open source. So you you you're really able to know that. It's truly coming from, let's say, honest entropy and that you're not able to, or, or the manufacturer is not able to keep a list of the seeds generated and that they're able to then just go through the list and, and check if, if any one of them has, has funds in them. But the point here is that, that nowadays hardware wallets are really used just for storage. There's no one going out with their hardware wallets to pay for stuff. And this is, it's, it's really, it's really hard to get people to see the fact that if you, if you just want to store Bitcoin, if the only thing that you want to do with this particular stack of Bitcoin is store it, then the best way you can store it is keep it in a completely non-digital environment. So basically you can do what I've done with my friends and family, generate the seed for them on the hardware wallets in the offline environments on, uh, true random number generator that you can verify, preferably it being open sourced, obviously, then you can know that this seed phrase that you've generated is really random. And you know, it's generated on an offline device. So you know that there's no tampering with it. And now what you can do is, like I said, you can just factory reset the device. Now the seed doesn't stay on the device. Now I could connect the device again, generate a new seed, and basically use that account as a spendings account and just keep my savings account on metal. Just keep it on metal. I don't need to touch it. If I ever do, I can just factory reset the device again and enter it in. We obviously are building a, a much smoother user experience to this so that you don't have to have two seed phrases and you don't have to be factory resetting the device all the time. But the main thing is that your hardware wallet can be a bit more complex as long as your savings account isn't staying on it, as long as your savings account is only uh, generated on it, but then instantly removed, then you don't you don't have to sort of be afraid that okay, now that I'm carrying this hardware wallet with me in public and making payments with it, that if someone steals it or whatever happens, if there's a you now with inflation twenty dollar wrench attack, that someone could force me to to move my savings Bitcoin over to them because it's it's impossible to access it because the keys aren't on the device anymore. You could technically say it's it's sort of like a, a mix between hot and cold storage, 
But at the same time, it's like the one that you're really storing is in the maximally cold storage. Maximally cold, well, if you don't count time locks, of course, but maximally cold storage is no digital environment, just on a seed phrase. And if you ever need to spend that, you just enter the seed phrase in again and you can, you can spend that. But it's like that, that's sort of the, the really big narrative shift we're trying to make here. Like, let's move all the funds to cold storage and then have the savings account in like very cold storage and the spendings account is sort of like not as cold, but still cold. You know, where to take those? So like <laughs> the way I imagine a, the super duper safest way to store your Bitcoin, if you, um, you generate your keys, your private keys by rolling dice or flipping coins. Uh, 99 rolls of dice or, or, uh, 256 coin flips. Write that down. Do the math yourself with pen and paper. Figure out what the public key is. Send some Bitcoin there. But no, send some, you know, KYC free and then coin joined when, when bought and when, when sent, uh, Bitcoins that you have verified the, the, the open source code of Wasabi or whatever before you coin join. And, and then, then you send them to this device, to this address that you generated by rolling dice or flipping a coin. And you, you convert it into a seed phrase also with pen and paper. And there you go. There you have, uh, and you, well, you time lock them or preferably you should do a multi-sig too, to, to have them like a, a five out of seven multi-sig and you store four out of the five keys and give two to a to two different trusted third parties or three and uh, you store the other keys in different nations on stainless steel devices that you bury uh, at least six feet underground is that is that the tldr of of uh, how to safely store your bitcoins in your mind um, absolutely that's that's a very safe way to store your bitcoins you should you should run your own node as well of course exactly yeah, probably yeah. you buy on an old laptop with uh, you know some distribution of linux that is completely uh, you know devoid of of crap and uh, <laughs> with only bitcoin core and nothing else on the computer for sure the thing here is that obviously that's the best way of generating a seed right just throwing dice or, or flipping coins the problem is most people don't want to do that and the thing is, we can just give the same experience in a digital format, right? As long as it happens offline. Yeah. Well, almost, almost the same as it. Uh, like, this is the thing. This is the, there's always, I mean, always a trade off between convenience and, uh, security. And there's just no way around that. And the thing is that this is true, not only for Bitcoin, but for absolutely everything in life. And Bitcoin has just illuminated that fact. So, so th this is what I think Bitcoin does so well on so many levels of psychological phenomena and human behavior phenomena. It just enlightens, it, it illuminates what the problem is and why we're, what we're doing wrong when thinking about certain aspects of life. And one of them is definitely the trade-offs between convenience and security. And most people choose convenience and then they stay on their hamster's wheel, chained to their fiat bullshit jobs all their lives and trust the government. Absolutely. There's, there's definitely a certain amount of trust in anything you do. But let's even take your example here where you, where you throw dice or flip a coin, right? This is, this is getting very deep and philosophical, but even there, you sort of Good. have, <laughs> even there, you sort of have 
uh, some amount of trust. Let's say you buy the dice from some no, store. No, 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 you cut down a tree and you carve exactly. them out. Exactly. So here is like, if you buy the dice somewhere, you're still trusting sort of that the dice are just perfectly round and that it doesn't, that there's no tendency to hit a certain number, same with the coins. So it's like everywhere you can find some level of trust that you need to find, unless you literally go cut the tree down yourself and make the dice, make a dice out of that tree. What's the golden sort of golden middle row that you can take here? In, in my opinion, that the best sort of in terms of how do we get masses on board without sacrificing on security and sovereignty is obviously needed to be self-custodial. That's no question. You need it to be self-custodial. Otherwise, there's really no point in custodial Bitcoin, except for obviously in some scenarios, if you're an institution currently, or if you're very old, if you're very young, th there are scenarios where, where custodial solutions do come in. And for example, in scaling lightning, custodial solutions are, are good. That's no question. But um, the ultimate goal should be to have as many people embrace self-custody as, as humanly possible, because that's how we get to a very, very good situation with Bitcoin where, where it's actually making a change. Because if it's, if everything is custodial, custodial, then we're not really changing anything, right? It's just a new no, gold standard. Uh, this is, uh, there's a, I have a funny example from a friend uh, in Copenhagen who, who's, who told me his, his story. He's a very nerdy guy and he's been running his own node since like 2016 or something. And, or even earlier than that. And he's been trying, uh, coin joints and multi-sig solutions and whatnot, all sorts of stuff. And he gave his mother some Bitcoin in 2017 on a block, com. Was that the name of the biggest ones back then? And, um, uh, she never touched hers, of course, and uh, he, he did all of these security stuff with it uh, over the years. And guess who 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 kept most of their bitcoins, like him or his mother, for five years down the line or six years down the line? Of course, not doing anything with them is probably the best way to uh, to hodl for for most people. It's just buy them and don't do anything with them. Don't fiddle around too much. Like that. That's probably a good choice for the vast majority of, of users. Absolutely. Keep, keeping it simple is very important. And that's sort of why a one wallet infrastructure kind of makes sense, because then it's like you don't have to be moving them constantly between like a spendings and, and savings account. But um, actually, my, my sister also lives in Copenhagen. She recently had a son I'm heading there for, for her son's baptism in next yeah, weekend, actually. It wasn't her, by the way. But, yes. <laughs> but I, I actually have have an anecdote similar to that as well. It's basically a lot of people, especially in the shitcoin uh, space, are, are trying to push this narrative that self-custody will never be mainstream, that we need to sort of build these very complex and um, user-friendly systems that that the masses can adopt, like, like something like the Ethereum uh, account abstraction, which is just like another name for an exchange, basically, you just have someone else control the account and you just have kind of like a smart contract account. Um, and then obviously like something like the Solana Saga phone, where, where you again, just keep the, uh, private keys on or the seed phrase on the secure elements inside the phone. And then obviously the ledger, ledger recover, 
and these sort of features. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that there's not uh, a market for custodial solutions. And I think it's good that you split uh, or make a differentiation between uh, cold storage and custodial and cold storage and non-custodial because you can do both, right? It's it's good to have everything in cold storage and then decide whether you do custodial or non-custodial. So, for example, if I just if I generate a seed with with hardware wallets and I put the seed down on on metal, now I can take the metal to a safety deposit box at a bank. Now you could technically make the argument that okay, this is custodial Bitcoin because the bank is custodying my private keys, but at the same time I have them in cold storage. So it's it's good to make a differentiation there. But but back to the fact that shitcoiners are, are actually sort of trying to, you could say, abstract away uh, self-custody in, in many ways. I, I really believe it's bad for the ecosystem in general, because obviously Bitcoiners understand it very well. Not your keys, not your coins. So, for example, I, I have a 70-year-old dad. You could think like, okay, he's 70, he maybe shouldn't be custodying his Bitcoin. And, and like that's sort of maybe the age where you could start using like a custodian. but no, come on. I, I gave my dad a seed phrase. I said, this is just like uh, a bill of cash. If you lose this, you lose the money, right? Now figure out where you're going to store it. And if you want to pass this on to your kids, then just do like you would do with a bar of gold, right? I told him maybe you can give half of it to a lawyer that's in charge of your will. Write it, write it on your will. Or if you're you're skeptical, you're, you're afraid the lawyer might steal it, write half of it down in your will and put another half in a safety deposit box, or then just keep it for yourself in your house and put a note in your will where you want your kids to find it. So I don't, I really don't buy the argument that people can't do self-custody because it's too hard. Like, come on, it's writing 24 words no. down. It's not rocket science. No. And it might be the case that most people will use custodial for a long time ahead. And uh, that's fine. The only thing is we'll just have to point out how stupid they are, they are uh, in a gentleman-esque manner as we can. You know, point out that they're completely stupid without being rude. Absolutely. Like, like I've said multiple times, I, I do believe there's a place for custodial solutions. I'm not like of the mentality that let's just abolish all custodial wallets, let's abolish all the exchanges, let's abolish everything. No, that's not what I'm saying, but but I'm saying like the goal should be to progressively get more and more people to take custody of their own funds. And that's sort of where I think we can make a difference by making a, a product that's not um, sacrificing on security and sovereignty, but still achieving very high and very good usability and very, very nice user experience. I think it can be done very well. And I think just, just coming back to this, this narrative that hardware wallets are just storage devices. I really don't think that's, that's the right narrative we should drive for simply because the storage device is this device where you store the seed. The seed is the store. That's the storage. The seed is what you're storing. If you want to store the seed in the most durable fashion, you store it on a piece of metal. You don't store it inside of a device that's just basically naturally going to degrade. 
No, a, a hardware wallet is a signing device. That's what it is. Like exactly. It, and many people use them for that. Like you said, most people use them to just store their bitcoins, but many people use them to they plug them in where whenever they do a transaction on uh, on their computer. Uh, I mean, you can't really do it on your phone unless you have one of those clunky devices that, what, what was that one called? The Cabo Vault? Uh, I got one of those a couple of years back and then they rebranded to something else. I don't remember what now. Keystone. Yeah, Keystone. Yeah, and they were air-gapped with QR codes. So it's basically just a paper wallet on a digital display. And I... I I kind of like the device. It's fun to play around with. But then again, I, I like like most hard, uh, hardware wallets. Uh, I think they're, they all have features that are cool in their own little way, except maybe Ledger at this point. And the obvious shitcoin, shitcoin, more shitcoiny devices that, whose main purpose is just to onboard as many cryptos as possible. Uh, those are obviously to be avoided, but yeah, it's, it's a cool, um, industry to, to follow, uh, and to see what happens in and looking forward to using, trying out and using your products. Uh, I think both the, uh, seed plate thingy and, and the, uh, uh the actual hardware wallet looks pretty cool, uh, or really cool. <laughs> so, so I'm looking forward to testing them soon. And speaking, speaking of, Testing stuff soon. Will, will you guys come to the Riga? Absolutely, yeah. I'll, I'll be coming to Riga at least. I'm not uh, 100% sure if, if anyone else is going to join me from our team, but I'm definitely coming. Oh, we'll meet there then. Absolutely, and we'll, yeah. And we'll get to uh, engrave, uh, make some graffiti somewhere, you know, and, and go and rebel engrave stuff into stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we actually did that as well. We, uh, we're trying to gather... Uh, coins for this video that we're going to do as soon as we get them, these five cent coins. We, we want to do sort of a, a video where we, um, where we try to buy groceries with five cent coins. So we're going to try to get to, I think we have about, we have like a pyramid of coins on, on my right here, but we're going to try to get to a thousand coins. I think we have like maybe 300 now, uh, about a hundred, 120 euros worth of coins. And we're going to try to buy groceries with, with that amount. But what we've done here is we basically used the engraving pen to uh, engrave Bitcoin symbols on the back of the coins where, you know, you have the, the artwork. And according to the law, the, uh, the grocery store is uh, required to accept it because it's legal tender and they, they can't not accept cash if it's a grocery right. store. Is that in Finland or in uh, Latvia? That's in, that's in, well, I think it works in Latvia as well. Uh, I, I'm not sure about the Latvian legislation, but we were thinking about doing it in Finland because I don't know how, how heavy the bag of a thousand coins is going <laughs> to be to bring on. Is, is, so really is the, the, the euro, like, uh, that, that's a law, uh, governing euro use, I guess, in Finland. So it, it's a Finnish, so Finland has legal, legal tender laws like that then. Uh, yes, I, I'm pretty sure it's every EU country. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I'm, it's at least Finland. So basically, Euro, as it is legal tender, uh, a store which sells necessities, like a grocery store, okay. is required by law to accept each denomination of the Euro. So we're basically sort of doing this funny, uh, little, rebellious thing where we're sort of using the weakness of the euro against mm. it 
and start trying to orange peel yeah. this grocery store at the same time. That's excellent. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's such a law here in Sweden where uh, it's card payments everywhere. So it's like either card payments or you pay within some phone app. And there are like two apps, one called Swish and one called Bank ID, which the, the entire country is hung up on those two things. Like if those go down, Sweden is fucked. There's no way to make any transaction with anyone except for, uh, I mean, us, <laughs> yeah. we still can. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same thing here. We also have this bank ID uh, system, which, which basically encompasses everything that's everything that happens. But that, that sort of brings me to, to another in, or, or interesting topic, which is like a digital identity solution and how that, how, how, how we're able to, to do that and why hardware wallets are important for that as well. I've listened a lot to Michael Saylor. I don't know if you're about to sell that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of him, but, um, Michael Saylor talks a lot about, or at least when, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, he, he talks a lot about this, uh, Twitter orange check mark thing where you basically deposit some Bitcoin and get the orange check mark and that's sort of a way to fight off bots by actually requiring a deposit on it i actually have another uh view on this or in my opinion a better way that it could be done well the first problem is like okay let's say everyone is required to deposit like whatever fifty thousand sats or something uh to receive an orange check mark well now it's like we're giving twitter or now x all this money in, into their custody and, and what are we getting in, in return? Just the check mark, right? So we're giving a bunch of money into them and it's like, we're basically just taking a bunch of money out of circulation, which is maybe not bad in the case of Bitcoin because the, the value goes up, but at the same time, there might be more productive ways to do it. So one very interesting way that I think is very potential or has, has a lot of potential is tying this digital identity not only to bitcoin deposits but more like bitcoin ownership right so i don't need to give x or, or twitter that money for them to store in order for them to verify that i'm a real person i can basically use a hardware wallet as a method of of this sort of authentication this deposit proof of keys thing but Ex exactly a couple of years back exactly pretty much like that so so you basically, you obviously generate and store your keys on the hardware wallets, except for the keys you want to store just completely offline, the savings account. Uh, but you generate and store the keys on your hardware wallets. And now you can basically use um, the keys on the hardware wallets, maybe even combined with like a, a specific key, a unique key for each hardware wallet uh, to sign a digital identity. So let's say I want to create a digital identity let's say Samuel, right? I use my Bitcoin keys and a unique device key to sign that identity. And now anyone can verify that, okay, not only is this like proof of keys in, in the sense that I actually am the owner of a Bitcoin account, but it's also a type of deposit because I own a hardware wallet, right? So it's like, now I'm not just giving money to Twitter or X for them to just store so that I get a check mark, but I'm actually acquiring a product that is useful for me that serves the same thing because what, what does the money deposit serve here? It serves as basically a, a cost of entry in the sense that now you can't have a bunch of bots because the price of bots go up. You're paying to yourself instead of paying to Twitter, basically. 
But exactly. What what you are paying to Twitter though is uh, uh, with your information. You're paying the cost of giving them information about exactly how many bitcoins you have on that specific address, right? Well, technically, yes, and and in that sense, you could also just do the device key. So what you can do is is you give each device a unique key uh, that you store in the secure elements. It's basically a random generated like device key, which basically all the hardware wallets have already. Like if you know, for example, when you update a hardware wallet, it basically checks the updates from the device key and checks that the update is legitimate. But you can use this device key to basically uh, sign this identity. And in that way, you wouldn't have to even tie your Bitcoin address to it. Uh, you only tie the fact that you have a hardware wallet to the identity. So now it's like, okay, you can't have a sw- swarm of bots because if you want to create a bot, you have to get a hardware wallet, right? And another thing is like uh, tying this to Worldcoin and iris scanning. Uh, you might want to have some sort of proof of human humanness, but you might not want to give it to Sam Altman. So what you can achieve with a hardware wallet is like... I wouldn't um, give it to any Sam. <laughs> this is actually pretty funny because it's like... Uh, not Sam Bankman-Fried, not, exactly. Uncle, not Uncle Sam. Maybe not me either. <laughs> no, no, not, not even you, Sam. Yes. This brings me to a funny point because it's, my Twitter handle is Sal Hicks. And uh, that used to actually, I used to play League of Legends when I was really, really young. <laughs> and that's like my gamer tag from League of Legends. So I'm like, I'm Sam who plays League of Legends, which is maybe not the best <laughs> or most convincing uh, pitch at this point, but maybe <laughs> it's like irony. The irony is great. But um, get, getting back to sort of the, the digital identity and, and how you can sort of achieve this uniqueness there. Uh, like I said, you can tie it to to the device key and you can sign the identity with the device key. This this basically creates a cost of entry uh, yeah. so that you can create bots. And how you can create the proof of humanness is uh, a way that we we do it is, is basically we use an under-display fingerprint in the hardware wallet as a verifier. You can obviously use a, uh, a passcode as well. You can forget the fingerprint if you want. But one option here is that if you use the fingerprints, obviously the fingerprint data and in the future, we also want to incorporate facial recognition, which obviously all this you can opt out of by just having a passcode. But this can sort of serve as a proof of humanness. But instead of giving this biometric data to a third party like Worldcoin, you're basically just storing this this biometric data on your own offline device. That, I'd be much more comfortable with doing that than having it online. Exactly. So now you can basically tie this to a proof of humanness system where you where you have a hardware wallet that has a unique key inside of the secure elements that's used to sign the digital identity. And in order to operate the digital identity, uh, you need to uh, unlock the hardware wallets with your biometrics. So in this way, you can basically achieve a system where the cost of entry for bots is high. So there's no reason or no point to create bots. And the second point is that if you if you really tie it to uh, the biometrics that obviously you store in your device, there's not even a bot that can operate the system. So it's like a very good system in my opinion, and it, and it trumps the system where you 
just deposit money to a third party and the third party gives you the verification. Now you really don't know what the third party is going to do. Does it run away with the money? Does it spend the money to acquire more advertisers? Does it, what does it do with the money? Instead here, you're spending the money to get security and also have this uh, security device function as a, as a form of sort of cost of entry system. Yeah. So the way I interpret this is that it's not really proof of identification at all. It's just proof of uh, a certain cost attached, uh, which is fine because identification is bullshit anyway. And the, the passport was a temporary political measure, like, and like all temporary political measures, it's stuck. But I, I love these ideas. It's very interesting to think about Bitcoin security and, and also adjacent topics like identity and like how, how we stop spam and bots and stuff. Yeah. So, and uh, one, one more thing on the identity is you might not want it to be like a real identity where obviously like w- what is a, an identity even? It, it's like a, a name and number assigned to you by the government and stored centrally with the government. But in a more deeper sense, an identity is just, it's an identifier, right? So in the digital space, I'd like to have an identity that only I control, that is correspondent to a key or a piece of information that only I hold, but I don't want it to be in a central database. I don't want it to be sort of an an ID when I say identification, what do you think about? I want it to be an identifier online. I want it to be my identifier online. I want it to correspond to a name I've given myself online and maybe even an avatar I've given myself online. and, And that's sort of held by me, that's owned by me. Right. That's, that's sort of what I mean by digital identity. Yeah. This reminds me of a story I heard in, at Bitcoin Amsterdam last year. Uh, there's a Dutch guy who told me about this village in, in Holland where the local government did a population count. And on the form you filled out when, when, uh, the population count was done, it was, you could write down your religion. It was voluntary, but people still, most people did. And so it's like Christian or Jewish or atheist or whatever. And, and lo- all the Dutch cities did this thing. Uh, and it was stored in like a big warehouse in, or, or, or a, go- a government building of some kind in that little village. But then the Nazis came and they had a perfectly good uh, register of who was Jewish or not uh, in these uh, honeypot places. But this particular town, a uh, local guy burned down that house and all the information with it. And they had like 40% more Holocaust survivors there because, because of that, because they didn't have this centralized honeypot for the evil guy to take. And I think there's a lot to learn from that story. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing really like identity and property is, is really tied together a lot because as, as I said, like, what is identity? It's, it's just an identifier, right? So it's like, how do you want to be identified? Like, what is basically your call sign, right? I'm Samuel, you're Knut, you're Lou. It's like a call sign. So it's, it's, it's really not like uh, required for a central entity, a central database to store all these call signs because identities can really like vary. A very good example for this is... I think like artists, I'm a big fan of rap, but, um, you always yeah. have a, a Every, lot of everyone's flawed. Every, <laughs> yes. Yes. But, but this works with any, any type of, of uh, artists. 
well, not every single artist, but but it's especially especially with with rap artists very common. Uh, they they usually refer to their identity, and now I'm referring to your actual name and social security number and stuff as as government identity, right? Because that's the identity your government uses. But if I take someone like, let's say Jay Z, for example, I don't know, I don't even know what Jay Z's real name is, right? It's like I don't know what his government identity is, but the identity I know him as is Jay Z. So which identity is more important for Jay Z? Is it his actual government name or his identity? I know that Dr. Tra- Dr. Dre is not a doctor, but still, I know him as Dr. Dre. Exactly. And, and that Snoop Dogg is not actually a dog, but a human being. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yes. So it, it's like identity in the sense that like government, like like they refer to like government identity and your, I would say like actual real identity is, those are very different things. And when I'm referring to digital identity, I'm referring to the identity that you want to appear as online and, and the fact that you should be able to own that identity. So what you're saying is that martial matters matters, but that Eminem is the real Slim Shady. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Okay. I got it right then. Luke, do you have any more questions for Samuel? This has been fantastic, by the way, Samuel. I love this conversation. I'm looking very much forward to uh, to seeing you in Riga and uh, trying out the stuff and hanging out. Fantastic conversation. Likewise. Well, Samuel, I think, first of all, I'll just even add actually a little bit about how we connected. And I mean... This is the brilliance of the local Bitcoin communities. I, I unfortunately can't say that we originally connected through Orange Pill app. I can't exactly say that because we, we did meet at a couple of meetups before the, the big one where we ended up driving home from sauna in Tampere. And that was, that was a, a lot of fun. And thanks again for the ride. But no worries. that was an Orange Pill app, uh, meetup. And so uh, when you say the ride, are you referring to the sauna? Uh, let's just not confuse people, Knut. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, the, the main thing was that we met locally. We, we met face to face and built this connection. I, I actually had a, a Yoki's, uh, before we probably between our first two meetings was Prague, but in, in Prague, our, our, Mutual friend Remo was selling the Yokis in Prague. And so, I mean, that was great that you, you managed to actually get someone out there, uh, sending it around, but I, I had no idea it was, was from, from you. And, and so that was the thing is that I saw the, I saw what you had made and it's, it's professional. The box is fantastic. And, and, and I say that because even just having little things like the packaging, like that's, that's great. But other than that, it was exactly what I was looking for. I was going into Prague looking to get a seed plate kit. And that was my favorite. And so the, the thing about it is I'm, I'm just super impressed that you've, you've managed to put this all together. You've got the manufacturing and your shipping. Uh, people, people can buy this now from your website. And so I was just super impressed. And, and then we, we spent some time together in person. I, I mean, we're, we're, we're within walking distance of each other right now. So, so like the, the, the thing I'm really wanting to emphasize with this is I'm, I'm really happy to be able to make more of a, a local connection and have a little more of a Bitcoin presence here in Finland, because it, it seems like there isn't too much of one yet. I, I guess, I guess what I'd like to know though, after kind of all that is what, what made you go all in? Because 
I, I mean, I don't really want to draw attention to your age too much, but uh, I, I mean, you're you're younger than me, and that's saying something. And and I, I think it's amazing and impressive that uh, you've decided to to do that. So, what what made that decision for you? Why did you decide to to start this company and go all in, all in with it? Uh, and did it have to do with your trip to Argentina? Yes, absolutely. Thank thanks, Luke, for the kind words. I feel the same way. It's, it's very good to have a local community that's sort of uh, very engaging and. And the sauna was religious. It was it was a funny funny tweet. But um, what what made me go all in? That's that's a very good question that I I do think about a lot. You, you could call it like the orange pill and blue pill moments. I, I had a moment like that because well well a bit a bit about my my family background. My, my parents are doctors and they're very academic people. So it was like very much pushed on me, sort of the academic side. And I, and like I said in the beginning, I'm, I'm naturally very curious in, in the way that, that I want to find out the truth. And originally I wasn't really interested in economics at all, but, um, once I realized that it's sort of the bedrock of society, money is sort of the bedrock of society. I, I started to question like, what is money? And Argentina was a very good example of that. It was like, obviously when I was younger, I knew that, hey, if I go to Sweden, I have to exchange two Swedish kronas. And and if I go to the US, I have to get dollars. But what made me go all in, I think, is the fact that I realized that the system is inherently broken. The system is inherently corrupt. And I thought that I only have one life, right? Okay, yes, I'm young, but still, I only have one life and, and I only have a certain amount of time in my life and I really don't even know how much time that is. So it's like, what do people usually want to do with their lives? Well, it's either make a lot of money or do something fun or do something uh, meaningful. And I thought, obviously, growing up in a, in a relatively uh, well-off family and I'm surrounded by relatively well-off people, I didn't really find any sort of purpose in just trying to pursue money. So I, in Argentina, I realized that the purpose is really like people around you and, and sort of trying to make the world a better place, as cheesy as that sounds. But everyone picks their fights and everyone sort of picks the problems they want to solve. And it's really dependent on sort of what problems you're able to recognize. And obviously I was in a fortunate position that I was able to recognize this problem by going to Argentina and by sort of taking the leap of faith. And by realizing the problem, I thought, well, this is basically the biggest problem there is because our financial system is the bedrock of our society. And if that's broken, then what does it even matter what I do if, if I'm, if I'm doing it in a broken system? So. That's sort of what what I what got me into into Bitcoin and into really going all in, and then it, it was just a matter of figuring out well what can I do to help, right? Of course, I can I can try to contribute to education, which is great, uh, which I try to do. Of course, I hope a lot of my no corner friends friends and family uh, watch this and and sort of get get something out of it. But at the same time, it, I, I thought about doing something much more concrete. One problem I saw is, is obviously the security, security issue. 
and also the user experience issue and how do we really bring Bitcoin to a lot of people. We and what what I came to I, or I came to the conclusion that we really need a very cool and sort of hip product that's easy to use. It's nice to use that people want, but that doesn't compromise on the uh, core values of Bitcoin. And, and that's sort of what drove me here. That's fantastic. And no, I, I love it. And and honestly, you, you, you speak so well about all of these topics. You, you've clearly put a lot of thought into it. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to to see this develop uh, with you because because yeah we're 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 working with you at Xelox uh, now and yeah really looking forward to taking this journey with you in in our capacity to spread the word because yeah this is a fantastic project and uh, happy to you know work with you as again someone local but also just because it's a fantastic idea and um, you've got a great vision so. The show is also sponsored by BitcoinBook.shop, the Bitcoin-only bookstore by Consensus Network. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out BitcoinBook.shop for all your Bitcoin book needs. Consensus is always looking for new contributors, whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to Consensus Network by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. I, I don't have anything else for for uh, this this session. I think I think we've we've covered a lot of well tons here today. So I I think the last question I would have is is where can people find you and find uh, Xelox? Well you can find us mainly on Twitter uh, at Xelox Wallets. Xelox was unfortunately taken, but uh, we own the trademark, so that's good. Okay. So yeah, Zellox One on Twitter and obviously the other social medias as well. We're in Noster as well, uh, not very active there, but um, if you're into Noster, go check us out there. I, I listened to uh, your your discussion with with Michael Dunworth about Noster. I think you could you could have talked about uh, sort of the ability of bots being able to just generate an infinite amount of key pairs. And I think that's actually, that's something that we, we can solve with what we talked about, like the new yeah, science yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I, I just think I, I haven't decided on what I, what I think about the problems really, but, but I think it's something worth discussion, discussing. And I, I think that the, the Noster community should be like more open to discussions about where the vectors are pointing. Not saying that they're not open to it, but like I welcome discussions. Like, yeah, yeah. and and I, I completely agree with your arguments uh, about it, but uh, but I think it's still it's still early. But yeah, if your point was if you want to find us on Nostr, we're we're also there. Yeah, so are we, and so am I. Yeah, I, the, the final question I have for you, Samuel, is obviously what? How are you celebrating in Bitcoin Infinity Day this year? Currently, I don't have any plans. I was hoping you could provide me with plans. Yeah, then you should join our live stream on the 21st of August between uh, 4 and 8 CET. That's one hour later in Finland, I guess. We'll be live streaming and having a whole bunch of guests on. And uh, anyone who wants to basically can hop on and say something in the chat or even hop in and be a guest for a while. Sounds great. I'll definitely be there. All right, then uh, take care, Samuel. We'll uh, we'll see each other in Riga, and good luck with everything. Thanks for the discussion.
Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. What did you think about that episode with Samuel? It was great to hear how he figured out the importance of Bitcoin and we'll be following his projects at Zellox very closely from here. Let us know what you thought about this episode. You can send us a Boostergram on Fountain, leave us a comment on YouTube, or get in touch on Noster or Twitter. You can support us on Geyser Fund, Patreon, or send us sats directly to freedom at getalbi.com. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Our show sponsors are Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, and BitcoinBook.shop. That's all for now. See you next time, and thanks for listening.